0: For years, the same question about the life of Jesus bothered me, and maybe it's bothered some of you. When you get to the last week of Jesus' life, starts with Palm Sunday, you can call it Holy Week, you can call it the Passion Week, whatever. If you want to find it in our series in Mark, it starts in Mark 11. If you want to go ahead and be turning, we're going to look at Mark 11 and 12. How is it? This is the question, and, and you go back and you, you go, oh, wait a minute, how is it? That a man can go on Palm Sunday, they're laying palm branches for this guy's entry into the city of Jerusalem. They're shouting, Hosanna, right? The Savior's here, uh, uh, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, like the kingdom is here. How do you go from that level of popularity, that level of, yo, it's on, Messiah is come, to by Good Friday, they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Like, how does that happen? How does Jesus, who never hurt anybody, I mean, Jesus, friend of sinners, lowly and mild, like parents would give little, their little babies to Jesus so that he could bless them. I mean, he healed the sick and he had compassion and he loved the poor people and he helped all these people. How does this guy get nailed to a Roman cross? Like, what is that about? It all hinges on uh, Mark 11 and 12. If you're like me and you've ever... Uh, wondered about that. I mean, it's Passover week, just to set the scene. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, it's Passover week, and Jerusalem is a powder keg. This happens year after year, by the way. There's Messianic fervor. Is this the year? You reckon this is the year? I mean, here we are, God's people, and we're just being subjugated by the mighty Roman Empire. But who knows, maybe this is the year when Messiah bubbles up. And when Messiah comes, what's he going to do? Oh, he's going to take care of business. Messiah is going to put God's people back on the map, put us back in charge. No longer will we be kicked around by Rome. And this, have you heard about this this, this, this one from Nazareth? Like, yeah, yeah, they call him the Nazarene. Yeah, that's him, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard? Yo, I heard he fed 5,000. Of course, that's small town rumor. So I heard it was 25,000. I heard it was 50. and he did it and he got a red lobster to come to our city like everybody's got this you know it just keeps bigger and bigger and the rumors keep building i heard he could walk on water i heard he could overthrow caesar and and it's like is he the one maybe if anybody fits the bill on paper jesus of nazareth should absolutely be the messiah he's come to overthrow rome and said what does he do i mean to be the messiah this is not just a political leader this is not just a military leader. This is also a religious leader. You need, you absolutely need the support of the religious authorities. Here he's come, they think, to overthrow Rome for which you need the support, the backing of the religious authorities. And instead, he's overthrowing, it seems, the religious authorities. This all starts when he goes into the temple. Remember this? He goes on the first day, looks around, does a quick sightseeing tour, comes back. But then when he goes back in, uh, Mark 11, like 15, Somewhere around verse 15, he goes into the temple. What does he do? Clear, Cleans out the temple. Pa- apparently, what was going on? During Passover week, I mean, there's all this traffic coming through. Everybody's coming to the temple. you got to bring your sacrifice. The problem is you're coming from all these towns all around the, 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 the ancient Near East, and everybody's got their own currency. So you've got to buy You're not gonna load up all your animals that you need for the sacrifice. You're gonna just buy them when you get to Jerusalem. The problem is by the time you get to Jerusalem, you're showing up with Hebrew shekels and this one's got a Greek drachma and this one's got a Roman denarius. You need somebody to change all that money. Then you need somebody to take that new currency and uh, uh, change it so you can buy the livestock and everybody's getting a little cut of the action. So the guys selling livestock are on the take the money changers sitting there right there in the temple. It's become big business because on every transaction, they keep a little percentage back for themselves. Jesus comes in with a whip, turns over the tables of the money changers, clears them out, get out. And he says, uh, 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 they, 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 they've turned my house into the den of thieves, right? You remember this? Here's the thing. the Pharisees, The Pharisees have a very complicated relationship with Jesus. On the one hand, they want him to be Messiah. They want him to be Messiah. But on the other hand, he keeps doing, they don't, and in fact, they don't even have a problem with him clearing out the temple because part of being a Pharisee is you want a pure religion. So they don't have a problem with all this Messiah talk. They don't have a problem with cleaning out the temple. Their big problem is he went and did that, you ready? Without their permission. See, they want a Messiah that works for them they want a messiah that's going to fulfill what they want they have the authority and messiah is supposed to if they had just if he had done the temple thing with their blessing then it would have been fine and that's really the problem you see over and over again jesus is coming as messiah he's just not fitting the description of what everybody wanted messiah to be does that make sense this is what he runs into over and over again. They want a, they want somebody to fight. They want a warrior. And then he goes, into the, he goes into the temple and he cleans it out without the Pharisees' permission. Jesus did not ask for permission to go into the temple and to clean house. He just, he didn't. You, you know what he did? He walked into that temple. You ready for this? Like he owned the place. And when they ask him why he did it, you remember this? He says, uh, It is written, my house shall be a place of prayer for all nations. You start talking like that, you see why you run afoul of the religious elite. But the people, they love him. And so the Pharisees think, well, it's a matter of authority. So a little bit later, they question him in front of the people and everybody. The crowd seemed to love him. So we're going to take him down a notch in the popularity. We're going to, this is going to, Take him down in the polls. They get everybody in a very public form right there in the temple, and they have one question: Jesus in front of everybody. You think you have all this authority? You think you can just go into the temple and do what you want? You know, the crowds are following you? One question. Just one. Just answers one question. Oh, they got him. By what authority do you do these things? Good question, right? If a Messiah is gonna be the Messiah, he's gotta have credentials. These Pharisees have credentials. They got degrees. They've had the stamp of approval of other religious leaders. So go ahead, Jesus. Show us your resume. What are your credentials? What does Jesus say? I, uh, I'll answer your question if you'll answer just one little old question of mine. Pfft, ask us anything you want. They're thinking, this hillbilly from Galilee Go ahead, yeah, yeah, we're not afraid of your questions. He's like, all right, um, remember that John the Baptist? Was he the real deal or not? To which the Pharisees say, we'll need a moment, right? They call a Pharisee huddle and they get together, and they start realizing what Jesus has just done to them. Well, if we say he's not the real deal, if we say no, it doesn't matter what John the Baptist says about you, then the people the people are no longer going to come after Jesus. They're going to come after us. We're going to be in big trouble. On the other hand, if we say, yes, John the Baptist was absolutely the one from God, then Jesus is just going to say, well, then why didn't you believe him? He said, I'm the one, so there's my credentials. There's my authority. JTB said, I'm good. It must be good. So we're it's like what are we gonna do what are, we, we, we can't say John the Baptist is not the real so they come back to Jesus and say we have elected not to answer your question right? pass to which Jesus says oh oh cool cool then pass I didn't know we could pass then I'll pass I'll pass too I didn't, I didn't know that was a thing but if that's a thing then I'll, I'll pass defer right so now they realize we're not dealing with some hillbilly from Galilee this guy's sharp this is not the junior varsity we need to bring our A game and if they're going to take down Jesus they've got to trap him in a public setting and obviously questions like authority aren't going to cut it and so they they i believe this verse turn to mark chapter 12 verse 13 this passage this interaction It is subtle, it's easy to miss. If you were reading through Mark 12, you might just blow right past this particular passage, but I'm convinced this is their A game. Everything rests on how Jesus responds to this question. This is the question, in other words, that is the major hinge that gets us from everybody loves him to crucify him. It's what happened right here. It's subtle, but I'll see if we can draw it out here. Mark 12, 13. And they sent to him... Some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. Okay, so the religious elite that wants to bring Jesus down sends, this is interesting, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Pharisees and Herodians hated each other. But the one way you can always unite people, nothing unites like a common enemy. And they had one in Jesus. Who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are the people that would give anything if there was a Messiah that would come and would start to fight. Who were the Herodians? The Herodians were agents of Rome. They get their name Herodians. They were of the family of King Herod. So the Herodians got a good thing going. Now stay with me. The Pharisees wanna overthrow Rome. The Herodians do not want to overthrow Rome, right? They're making money. They got a good life. Uh, Put it this way. The Pharisees were mad at Jesus. They hated Jesus because he wouldn't take up arms and fight. The Herodians were scared of Jesus because they were scared he might take up arms and fight so they hated jesus but they hated him for different reasons they send the pharisees because they represent sort of the 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 the, the revolutionaries right the zealots they send the herodians because the herodians are rome's tattletales and whatever jesus says they're going to go right back and tattle to rome so they bait him they they, they try to draw him in and they came to him and said teacher dripping with flattery you can hear it teacher We know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. You you truly teach the way of God. Ugh. They're baiting him, right? Why why are they going on on and on about how you keep it real? Jesus. It doesn't matter that the Herodians are right here. You won't be swayed by that. You don't care. You know, because you know in, in matters when it comes to Rome, the Pharisees are like, say it, say it, say we're going to take up arms and fight, say it. But if he says it, the Herodians are going to go tell Rome and they're going to come and crush that kind of rebellion. They're going to crush Jesus. But you don't care. You see, they're flattering him. You don't, Jesus, you don't say the politically correct thing. You spit it 100. You don't care about anyone's opinion? You're not swayed. So never mind that the Herodians are here, the battle lines are drawn. It no matter what you say, you're going you cannot please both the Pharisees who are ready to fight and the Herodians who are if you even hint that you're any way revolutionary against Rome, they're going to go and tell. You you don't care. And so they come at him with the most incendiary thing imaginable. The battle lines are drawn. You ready? Here's the question. It all came down to the topic of taxes. Now, thankfully, taxes are no longer an incendiary issue in politics. Back then they were. And so they want to know. And here it is. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And just like they do on news programs when they try to pin a politician down, do not wiggle, do not, do not try to, w- I wanna know, should we pay them or should we not? Please do not respond with, well, let's, what, do you, what do you mean by taxes? Like, ah, I want a straight answer. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Why is this the incendiary issue? Why is this such a big deal? The Romans had a lot of taxes. There were certain things that, uh, uh, there's a temple tax that Jews had to give, but the Romans had theirs. Rome also had a lot of public services. You know, they got water from these. They, ha- they had waterworks. They had utilities, these massive aqueducts that the Romans built. Uh, 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 and so who do you think pays for those utilities? Roman roads, that you can. they were built so well, they can walk on today. Can you think of any roads right now that are still going to be here 2,000 years from now? Rome had some, right? I'm, I'm talking about, and, and then those taxes were, were is, is what paid for them. They offered protection, the Roman army. They paid for, really, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They had a land tax, they had custom taxes. There was a 1% income tax. Here's my point. It was not altogether an unrealistic tax system. In fact, uh, uh, historians comparing apples to apples, it might have been not even as high as we have today in our country. Okay, not, not unrealistic. Oh, but there was this one tax. Forget paying for aqueducts and forget the Roman roads and the soldiers. There was one tax. It was called the Caesar tax, the census tax, or the head tax. they all referring to the same thing. Caesar minted his own money. And one of those coins was, was a denarius, and it was worth a, a, about a day's wage. It was literally a day's wage for a Roman soldier. Okay, So uh, that coin, that denarius, this was called the Caesar tax, and everybody had to pay one denarius, One time a year, annually, you had to pay the Caesar tax. What does it pay for? Absolutely nothing. It's just Caesar flexing on everybody. It's just Caesar being Caesar. You will pay the tax for no other reason than to remind you that I'm Caesar and you pay the tax because I say you pay the tax. To quote my sermon from two weeks ago, it is what it is, (laughs) right? It is what it is, you pay that tax, right? Can you imagine being a subjugated people group, being forced to pay that tax? And this is why it was such an incendiary, this is why, this is what all rebellion centers around. And it came down to that Caesar tax, that was the mark. You were either a puppet of the state or to rebel would mean death. Let me uh, show you a picture of what it might've looked like in uh, Jesus's day, This this is a denarius, that happens to be Tiberius. And uh that particular Caesar would have been the Caesar that was in charge when uh, when Jesus was alive. The Jews hated that for two reasons. One is the one I just said. It's Caesar, fle- it's anytime you're reminded by someone lording it over you that they are the boss and you're not and you're gonna pay that and you're gonna, you're gonna take your hard-earned money and change in all your Hebrew shekels and you're gonna have to buy one of those to send to Caesar, it would drive you crazy. The fact that it's just a power move, it's arrogant and uh, uh, remind you that, that, that you're subjugated. But there was a second reason. Imagine you're a faithful Jew in the first century. Look, so so we sort of separate out the sacred and the secular in our modern day they didn't do that it was all kind of blended together and they would say that caesar was not only sort of appointed by god they would say caesar was one of the gods and there you have right there oh sorry that's the front and back of the coin i should have said that's heads and tails Right there on the back, look at what it says. You see, Caesar's dressed in the high priestly garments, and it says on the right side of the coin, pontiff, right? They called the Roman priest, I mean, they called the Roman Senate the pontiffs, and they called Caesar the pontiff maximus, Pontifus maximus. This is Latin for the highest priest, the priest maximus, the great high priest. So now, follow me you've got a little coin with a graven image of Caesar on it that says he's the high priest. Think about this. Let's go over the the 10 commandments. What's commandment number one? No other gods but God. What's commandment number two? Thou shalt not make a graven image. Y'all check this out. Everywhere a faithful Jew went in the first century, he had to carry around a portable idol. Can you imagine? Everywhere you went, a little portable idol, a little reminder that You belong to Caesar and that there's nothing you could do about it. That's why. That's why this uh, uh, particular issue was the incendiary issue of the day. That's why it came down to taxes. Look, there was a line in the sand. And that line in the sand, when a revolutionary wanted to go full-blown revolutionary, that was the line in the sand. The line in the sand was simply, are you going to pay the Caesar tax or not? So uh, uh, it's not that different really from the revolutionaries in our country. You may recall, uh, right, the Stamp Act, what did the, 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 the Boston Tea Party? The idea was not that we were gonna make a revolution over that little boat and throwing that tea overboard. What did that do? It was a symbolic act that said, no, 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 we're done, we're cutting ties. We're no longer sending taxes back. Well, now you got, now you got England's attention, right? Now, now you got Rome's attention. So there's all sorts of these little um, would be messiahs that would bubble up, and their issue was always about taxes. Uh, if, if uh, uh, it's interesting to think maybe Jesus would have been alive to see this, but in, in 6 AD, there was a rebel named Judas of Galilee, and this guy up north, this, this Judas the Galilean, he got uh, t- uh, about 2,000 men to follow him and create this revolt, and he had his campaign platform had these three platforms to it. But the third and most important was, uh, and we're, we're going to refuse to pay the Caesar tax. If Caesar wants his taxes, let Caesar come and get it. And guess what Caesar did? Caesar came and got it. And not only killed Judas the Galilean, but hung him up on a cross. And then you ready for this? Crucified. This would have been 6 AD. So think about it. Walking through the streets of Galilee, Jesus as a six-year-old boy is walking past Bodies writhing, tortured, crying out for mercy. He crucified 2,000 of Judas, the Galilean's followers. So you got Judas and his 2,000 followers on crosses all up and down the streets of Galilee to make one message very clear. Anybody else not wanna pay the Caesar tax? Rome's got plenty more crosses. That's why, by the way, do you ever wonder on Good Friday, do you ever wonder why Jesus was crucified between two thieves? Does that strike you as odd? It seems like an awfully harsh punishment for thievery. They weren't up there for shoplifting. The Greek word is lestes. They were brigands. They were insurrectionists. See, from Rome's perspective, you owe these taxes to Caesar because you've withheld them. You've robbed Caesar. And, be, so you, and you've incited other people not to pay your taxes. That's why he was crucified between two thieves. He was crucified between two would-be messiahs. So now you see why it's a big question. So let's get back to the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? You see that Jesus is pinned on the horns of a dilemma. If he says, pay the taxes, yeah, we should pay the taxes. He's gonna lose the support of the people. They're begging him to say, no, let's don't pay the tax. Let's, uh let's. Let's start the rebellion now. Even some of the Pharisees would, would be for that. Some of them were, 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 were Sicari, right? I mean, they were, they were zealots. They were part of the, this little organization that kept these little Sicari, these little Latin word for dagger under their garments so that at a moment's notice, they were armed and ready to start the rebellion. Jerusalem's a powder keg anyway. Let's do this thing. They're begging him. No, say, say I'd rather die than pay taxes. Viva Israel, right? That's it. To which the Herodians would go and let them die rather than pay taxes, right? The Herodians would go. They'd go get Rome, and they would crush that rebellion, and that will be the end of Jesus. So what do they do? If he, it, and that's why that whole business about, we know you don't care what people think. You won't sell out. If you don't think we should pay taxes, say it. Who cares what the Herodians think? Either get complete, what's it gonna be, Jesus? Either get completely discredited in the eyes of your adoring followers or get convicted of sedition by Rome. Oh, they got him pinned. They got him trapped and tricked. The trouble is, of course, you can't like trick Jesus because he like made you. And so he makes this little move almost like chess like a little subtle move something's happening over here like a little if this were conversation were a chessboard. over here this little pawn knowing their hypocrisy verse 15 he said to them oh why put me to the test bring me a denarius and let me look at it and they brought him one and as soon as they brought him one it was checkmate and they brought one and he said to them whose likeness and inscription is this they said to him well Caesar's and that's it Look, the very fact that they could pull out of their pocket a denarius and give it to Jesus showed Jesus' point. They proved that they were already complicit in Caesar's economy. If you use Caesar's money, if you benefit from Caesar's army, if you drink the water from Caesar's aqueducts, if you like traveling Caesar's roads, then you owe him. You owe a debt to Caesar. So pay back your debt to Caesar. Caesar's image is on the coin. So if you're already complicit in Caesar's economy, why are you going to get self-righteous about using his money? If it's already Caesar's money, then, verse 17, Jesus said to them, Render then unto Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God's. To everyone under 30, did I use those emojis correctly? Okay. Yeah. Those emojis are found in the original Greek text. You have to look carefully. But if there's ever a mic drop moment, is that not it? And they marveled at him. Now, fun Greek fact here. They ask, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responds, you should render taxes to Caesar. They ask, should we pay? He says, you should pay back. They ask, should we didomai? He says, you should apodidomai. They ask, should we give? He says, you should give back. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. You owe a debt to Caesar, so give back to Caesar what you owe Caesar. But let's think about your debt to God. So give to God. belongs to God. Now, I'd like to close, but before I do, I'd like to make an aside. But because it's only an aside and not the main point, I wanna mark the beginning of the aside. Then when we reach the end of the aside, I'll specifically mark the end of the aside and then we'll close out, you with me? This is the beginning of the aside. I believe these verses can help us when we think about how the church and the state should relate as citizens in this country in 2020. People think a lot about how should the church and the state relate, and I think that this is, uh, keeps us, I believe this keeps us from two wrong extremes. You ready? Here are the two wrong extremes. On the one hand, there are those who think all government is bad and corrupt and pagan, and thus we should resent and resist all forms of government. Uh, never pay taxes or participate in any way the bible says that is simply wrong in fact it says the opposite i personally believe that i owe the united states of america a great debt why well i love our country and i you know what i really like you know what i really like about the united states i like interstates I don't know if you ever thought about that before, but I like the fact that I can travel from one state to the next, and when I get to like the border of Alabama and Tennessee or something, the roads don't immediately stop. You know what I mean? Uh, the, 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 I like that the rule of law is generally respected. I like that we can feel reasonably safe. You know, that we have the greatest military in the world. The list could go on and on, but I have all these benefits as a citizen of this country, and I believe, as a result of all that, I owe taxes. Now, we may complain about government. It's a hobby of many people. But even bad government is preferable to no government and anarchy. Now, I know some people, when it comes to taxes, I know some people say, yeah, but, preacher, I don't like the way the government wastes my money. To which I would say, bro, you gonna tell me you've never wasted your own money? Come on, I'm looking at you. If you've ever bought a Snuggie or a Chia Pet, like you've wasted your own money. Did you cut yourself off? You still give yourself money to spend. You're not like, I'll never take another salary for I waste my own money. Please, you're gonna get righteous about the government wasting money. The Bible does not say government is perfect. It says, hear me clearly, you are in sin if you do not pay every dime you owe in taxes. Do not be like the man who heard a sermon on this topic and wrote the following letter to the IRS. And I quote Dear sir, my conscience bothered me. So enclosed is the $175, which I owe in back taxes. Then came the PS. PS. I'll give it a couple weeks, and if my conscience still bothers me, I'll go ahead and send the rest. Warren Wearsby, famous Bible commentator, uh, lands on this where I do. Romans 13, Paul says, pay what you owe. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. He is, his interpretation is like mine. And Weersby said he got an angry letter from somebody. You know, I'm a patriot, I'm a zealot, and I don't believe we should collaborate with the government, and here's all these reasons why. Weersby said, he wrote back, I got your letter, but I noticed you mailed it with a stamp through the United States Postal Service. Who do you think brought me this letter? Your letter has exploded in a burst of irony. He didn't add that part, but he should have. At any rate, Paul's saying, pay what you owe. And Paul had it a lot worse than us. The apostle Paul is saying, pay taxes. The whole time, he's enjoying the benefits of the Roman prison system. You think it's at all ironic that Paul was executed by Rome at the end of his life? Paul was beheaded as a Roman citizen. You think right before he was beheaded, he looked up at the executioner's ax and thought to himself in a brief moment of irony, I paid for that ax through my taxes, and yet the whole time, it says pay the taxes. I'm just saying, there is an extreme here that the Bible keeps us from, pay what you owe, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. On the other extreme, however, is when a government oversteps its legitimate God-given authority and demands things of Christians that we cannot do and remain obedient to God, then we must render unto God that which is God's. What do I mean? If the day comes, and I hope it never does in the United States of America, but if the day comes where the Constitution is changed or thrown out and the state tells us, look, Tom, if you preach this Bible, it's hate speech, and so it's outlawed. So here's what we're going to let you do. You can continue to preach, but you can only preach the state's interpretation. Well, on that day, we have no choice. We must render to God that which is God's. And I will continue to preach and face whatever consequences there are. And I hope that you, Coleman First Baptist, will join me in prison. (laughs) On the bright side, we'll have no trouble getting a nursery worker. Like, they're not going anywhere. (laughs) Uh, But all the while, paying taxes. Does everybody understand? This simple phrase of Jesus did not just silence the Herodians and the Pharisees, but has given guidance to Christian ethics about how the church and the state relate for 2,000 years. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. This concludes the aside. And now let's draw the matter to a close. The aside was just avoid either extremes, right? Jesus' words meant to keep us right here in this uh, appropriate way of looking at it. Don't be the guy who says, I'm never paying taxes because the state is all wrong. And don't be the guy that says the state is always right and we have to do whatever it says when it uh, uh, goes against, uh, uh, violates the word of God, right? Right here. Now, to draw this matter to a close, why? Why does Jesus say, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and things that are God's. Remember the question he asked? Whose inscription, whose image is on this coin? Remember the image of the coin? Whose image is on that? Everybody said the obvious answer, Caesar's. That's right. So the implication here is this. If this was made in the image of Caesar, that came from Caesar's mint. Caesar had that stamped and made, okay? So if this is made in the image of Caesar, then it belongs to Caesar. What's the logical implication? If you were made in the image of Caesar, you belong to Caesar. What's he saying? You. Whose image is stamped on your life? Hmm? Were you made in the image of Caesar? No, you were not. How were you made? Genesis 1.27. You were made in the image of God. So whose image is stamped on your life? And whose inscription is on your life? God's. So if, the, if you were made in the image of Caesar, you belong to Caesar. If you were made in the image of God, guess who you belong to? You belong to God. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Caesar wants his money back, fine. Give him his money back. But you belong to God. So what is it that is rendered to God? What are those things that are God's? If we're made in the image of God and we belong to God, what belongs to God, you ask? Uh, <laughs> that would be everything. Your life belongs to God. Your family is to be rendered to God. Your plans, rendered to God. Your dreams, given back to God. Notice, not not give to God, give back to God. Your all. Look at it this way. Trigger warning, by the way. Um, This will make your, if you're anything like me, this will make your pride bristle. Have you ever seen a cat that gets too close to an enemy, hunches its back and the the hair on the back stands up. That's what this does to my pride. Maybe it'll do the same to yours. And it comes, to, it comes down to human rights. When it comes to human and human interactions, you have human rights. You have to treat this person with respect you to respect Why? Because there's human rights. Listen carefully. When it comes to human on human interactions, there's such a thing as human rights. When it comes, however, to human God interactions, listen carefully, you have no rights. Did that not make anybody bristle? I hope it did, but just to be clear, I'm going to say it again, because it's something that most of us Americans have never heard ever spoken, so I'm gonna say it again. When it comes to human God interactions, you have no rights. Surely that makes your pride bristle. What do you mean, you mean I have no rights? What could you, who does God think he is? Say that sentence back to yourself. He thinks he's God. And if he's God, he made you. And if he's God, he holds you together. And if he's God, you are not guaranteed another breath in your lungs, but what God gives it to you. And if he's God, he's holding your molecules together right now. And if he wants to let them slip apart, he can slip apart. Where do I find that? In the Bible, in Colossians, it says, in him we live and move. and In in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being, which means if he wanted to stop, he could let us float apart. You say, well, I'm gonna use my life to do this or that. Your life is two handfuls of mist here today gone tomorrow if he wants your life he'll take it how do you get leverage on some being like that the answer is you don't now that should give us pause if you don't pay caesar by withholding taxes you get punished we we'll try robbing god by withholding obedience from him that's called sin we owe god a selfless life but we've been selfish that's robbing god we owe god generosity We've been greedy. That's robbing God. We've held others to a high standard, but we've allowed ourselves lots of justifications. That's robbing God. The list could go on and on, but sin is cosmic treason it's robbing god it's failing to give god we fail to do that to fail if you failed to give god the things that are gods if you failed to render unto god the things that are gods you you know you could you could build up a massive debt by not paying your back taxes what kind of debt are you going to ring up not rendering unto god the things that are god and who's going to get between you if judgment is coming you can get a lawyer to get between you and the irs who's going to stand between you and almighty god If you have been guilty of that, you have sinned. If you have failed to render unto God that which is God's, you have sinned and judgment is coming. But God has done something so wonderful. Out of his great mercy and his deep and abiding grace, listen, God has made a way for rebel sinners like us who have robbed God to be saved. How did he do it? Two days after this interaction, Jesus, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, rendered perfect obedience unto God. Now watch this carefully. He gave back to God that which is God's. He did it, he's the only one who ever did. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and we have, we have incurred this great debt and we can never pay it. But it's almost like, imagine, imagine you get so deep in debt and there's no way out. But imagine the, the church comes together and the church finds out your creditor's name and address, finds out your account number, and while you're drowning in debt with no hope of getting out, the church comes together, pays, mails a check to this person with your account number on it. It's very important. Your account number is on it. Well, the creditor gets the account and says, well, I've never heard of this first Baptist Coleman, but it's got your account on it. So you get a note that says your debt is now paid in full, paid on behalf of another. That's what Christ did for us on the cross. It's not a perfect analogy because what we owe God is way bigger than what any church or any group of people could ever cover. But it's not too big for the sinless, spotless lamb of God. And with his death on the cross, he cried, it is finished. Some scholars believe that to tell the what he cried out, it is finished, is also what they would stamp on Roman bills that meant paid in full. We owed a debt. That's why we say this at Christmas time sometimes. We owed a debt we could never pay. He paid a debt that he would never owe for us and our salvation. He rendered for us unto God that we might walk in this freedom and in response every day, render unto God that which is God's. Let's pray. God, grant to us that we might render to you, that we might give back to you that which is rightfully yours. Forgive us, God, when we have put our arms around things and said mine when in fact they're yours forgive us when we have been greedy instead of selfless and god grant to us that we might be convicted about ways in which we have maybe even rendered unto caesar in a better way than rendering unto god but god also grant to us your grace and your mercy i know there's people who they don't they don't feel worthy they don't ever feel uh, good enough they don't they don't Uh, feel like they've, they've measured up, God, grant to them your grace this morning and let them know that in Jesus Christ, every debt is paid and that in his perfect obedience, he rendered to God what we never could, but he did it for us in our salvation. God, grant to them the assurance of the Holy Spirit this morning. We need that. We need that. And for anybody here who doesn't yet know you, they're in pride, they've resisted you and they've not been saved, God, grant to them conviction. Grant that they might be saved today and respond to you, that they might render unto you that which is yours, which is everything. God, we ask this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I'm going to ask you at this time, if you would.